we believe he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the living word of God for us today. You all may be seated. Sharon, thank you for not just reading words, but bringing your heart to a reading, even as we responded with you. May I say the reason that we are reciting this creed in Colossians is because it is our hope that we as a community of faith will memorize it. How good that we would have hidden in our hearts for the rest of our lives, hopefully, these six verses from Colossians, my goodness. And so we'll continue to recite the creed and I wanna encourage you to take your little booklet, your Colossians booklet and spend some time with that. You know, you can rewrite it on the other side of the page, however you memorize things, but let's put that word in our hearts. At an elder meeting, probably a year and a half ago, Rob invited the elders. He said, I'd love for you, everyone to share a movie that has stuck with you over the years. What's one of your favorite movies, you know, and it kind of just marked you, this movie. And so, you know, remember, this is a group of 11 men, you know, at, at, at the time around a table. And so you can imagine where some, what some of these movies were. And of course, right out of the shoots, there's Braveheart, you know, that's there. And then I recall Apollo 13, uh, saving Private Ryan, see a theme in that, Save, the Saving Private Ryan. Um, it's also a confidential meeting, so I can't say the name, but I can say Talladega Nights was mentioned. Uh, you know, the baby Jesus prayer, you know, that's stuck with somebody. Um, the movie that came to my mind, and it really did come to my mind immediately, and I don't even think about the, this that much, but when he said it, it's an older movie, 1993. Lisa and I were in Dallas, Texas. I was in, in uh, finishing uh, seminary. We went once, one evening we went to the movie and went to see a movie called Summersby. Now, some of you may have seen this. It's, it stars Richard Gere. Richard Gere is Jack, and he is a Civil War veteran who comes home to the farm. Laurel is played by Jodie Foster, and she is the... The, the, you know, she was the widow that, that was there trying to keep the farm alive when, when Jack arrives back and he's, and he's not dead. Now, the, the movie, I didn't know this until I was kind of looking at some research on it, but the movie was actually set in a place called Vine Hill, Tennessee. 
post-war. And um, Laurel believes that her husband has been killed in the war. And out of nowhere, Jack shows up. Now, when Jack shows up back at the farm where Laurel's been trying to raise their son and keep the farm afloat, she senses that there's something not quite right about Jack. Now, she, you know, re-falls in love, of course, and, and they, they have a, a baby girl. But there's things about Jack, even within the community, that people are kind of scratching their head. There's something not quite right about him. And the biggest thing for Laurel is this. The Jack she married was cruel and abusive. And this Jack, who's now come home, is kind and gentle and generous. The economy has been devastated in Vine Hill. And Jack comes up with a kind of a harebrained idea at the time because it had never been done and convinces the whole town that let's switch our crop from you know, corn or soybeans to a very risky crop, tobacco. It requires pretty much every dime from everyone in the whole town. They give it all to Jack. He goes away because he's got to get the tobacco seed. He comes back, uh, they plant the tobacco. Now, one of the things that Jack did is that he signed deeds giving ownership of his parts of his family farm to former slaves. And they now had ownership of that land and ownership of the tobacco that they would raise on that land. Now, you can imagine post-war Tennessee, the, the plan almost failed before it got started just because of that. This is where the plot thickens. This is not even a spoiler. How do you spoil a movie from 1993? I, I don't know, you can't. You know, you've seen it or you haven't. So at this point, though, when the crop is just about ready to be harvested, the tobacco cut, we discover that Jack Summersby is a murderer. And indeed, he had murdered a man in a bar brawl. And a federal marshal shows up at this moment to arrest, try, and hang him. The other thing we learn as this unfolds is that this Jack Summersby that's come home to Laurel is not the real Jack Summersby. It turns out that he was in a jail cell with Jack Summersby during the war and that they were like identical twins. And he learned everything he could about Jack Summersby, but this man was Horace Townsend. The movie actually opens with him finishing burying Jack Summersby because he, he did die. And he turns and he goes to Vine Hill to take on the identity of that Jack Summersby who's dead. Now, here's why the movie stuck with me. Well, I'm in seminary and these things are on my mind. But think about the story, think about the story arc. Because this Jack Summersby, if he reveals his true identity to save his own skin, right? Because the, the, the real Jack Summersby, he's a murderer, he's gotta die. So if he reveals, wait, I'm not Jack Summersby, I'm not, to save his own life, then the livelihood of all the people in town, the former slaves and the deeds he signed to give them land and that tobacco 
would be null and void. Null and void. So the question is, will this man die for the good of those he's come to love? There's the theme, you know, where's that? That sounds familiar. You have to watch the movie, see how this ends. Now, when we come to this section of Colossians, why do I say that? Because the, the movie Summersby truly revolves around the essence of identity. And when we come to this creed, which is where we are in our study through Colossians, these six verses, you can write over the top of them, identity. There is nowhere else in the Bible where the identity of Jesus Christ is more beautifully, lucidly, comprehensively stated than in these verses. Oh, there's lots of verses, of of course, about the identity of Jesus, but I'm telling you, this is unique. In fact, we know from uh, church history that this is actually a hymn, that, that it was one of the first hymns of the early church. It doesn't mean they sang this, but in some way they recited it, they knew it, they, they memorized it. And in the same way that you and I, think about it, it makes sense, because if you think about Paul, right? Paul's, Paul's needing to describe the person of Jesus and words fail him. So when we want, when we're trying to describe the indescribable today and mere words fail us, what do some people do? And I'm looking at some of you in the room now. You make it a song. And the song goes deeper, doesn't it? Than just the words. And that's what we have. We have this hymn of Christ. So Rob and I said, we've got to slow down and examine this hymn. And we're gonna do that by taking the next three weeks. And we're only gonna do uh, two verses at a time, okay? So the first, we're gonna do 15 and 16 today, and then we're gonna do two, two, so that we're here for three weeks. Here's a question I have for you. When you think about this, why is it that um, Paul would, would um, go from verses 13 and 14, which Rob unpacked last week, which is all about our redemption in Christ. Okay, so that's 13 and 14, and and you unpack that, and Rob did an amazing job saying, look, do you understand that Jesus has delivered us from darkness to light, in other words, from death to life, and that he did this, and he's greater than Moses who delivered the people from bondage in Egypt to freedom? Oh no, Jesus is the greater Moses. A greater redemption. Moses was just pointing at Jesus. David was just pointing at Jesus. King Josiah was just pointing at Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so he, he, he gives us this foundational statement of redemption. And then he goes right into, let me tell you the identity of Jesus. Why? At least two reasons. First is this. Our redemption is only as good as the identity of our redeemer. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then that glorious redemption is no good, null and void. There's at least a second reason. We're gonna see this later in the book. There are some teachers in Colossae who are teaching the Christians there that Jesus isn't enough. That you gotta worship someone else. You gotta worship angels. You gotta... I tell you something, that is from the pit. Any 
word that says Jesus is not enough, as we like to say and has been said many times, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus is more than enough. And so you see, Paul's gonna address that, and so he launches into what becomes this first Christian hymn. Now, we're gonna look at verses 15 and 16 under two broad headings. I'm gonna rewrite what I had up here on the board. And the two broad headings come right out of verse 15. I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 15. And I want you to do this, and we'll throw this up on the screen. Rob has asked us to put a box around every reference to Jesus. You remember that? So if you look at 15 and 16, what, what, what boxes would we draw? Well, I think you'd start with the first one is he is, so there's a reference to Jesus, he. Put a box around that. He is the image of the invisible God. And then it says the firstborn. I, I would put a box around firstborn. I might not have done it in my notes there, but I thought, wait, that firstborn is a reference to Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. And it goes on, for by him, well, there's another box, him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, there's another one, and by him, there's another one. We'll go all the way through the book marking these references to Jesus for the book itself, as we've said, is all about Jesus. Look at verse 15, because right there you get two statements that are gonna outline our text, okay? He is the image of the invisible God, and then it says, the firstborn of all creation. So, who is Jesus? Well, what's the identity of Jesus? Paul says, well, let me tell you. And he says, first of all, I'm gonna tell you in relation to God. That's what we're gonna look at first. But then he says, I'm gonna also tell you in relation to creation. Here's how we're gonna get Paul's picture that he paints of the identity of Jesus. I want us to start with the first one. Who is Jesus in relation to God? Well, he is, verse 15a, the image of the invisible God. God is spirit, you all. God is, uh, you, you can't see God. But what this verse and others we'll look at in a moment make clear is that Jesus, the God-man, makes the invisible God visible. When we say that, please note, it's not that he's describing his physical characteristics, you know, like the pictures you've seen of Jesus. He's got a beard, brown hair, brown eyes, 5'8". You know, no, 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 he's not saying he's the image in that way. He's saying he is, and I'll explain this, he's saying Jesus is the essence of God. Uh, he is the, 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 he's the real presence of God. It's saying not he is the physical description of God, but he, he, Jesus, by his actions, his words, his attitude, what you see in his character, he is the character, heart, words, and attitude of Jesus. See, it's those invisible attributes. That's what Jesus is as we see Jesus in the gospels live his life. 
The Greek word uh, here for image is ikon, which we get icon, and an icon is an image of something. It's a representation of something. If you had a quarter in your pocket and you looked at the face of George Washington, that would be an icon of George Washington. It's an outline of him, an image of him. I know who that is. It's George Washington. Well, the word Greek word here, ikon, and the context tell us that it goes deeper than that Jesus is just an image. No, it, 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 it goes on, as I said earlier, to show that he's, a, he's actually a living revelation of God. We're talking about the deity of Jesus. We're talking about, I'm gonna just cut to the quick, the, the doctrine of Jesus that says he's fully God and he's fully man. Jesus, he doesn't, it's not as confusing, I think, as we often make it for if we kind of put a few verses together, we see that Jesus declares this multiple times. I want you to look on the screen because I've got a couple verses up here. John 10, 30. You remember Jesus says this and it's just a very blank statement. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Think about John 14, nine, it's there on the screen as well. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I want you to look at John 10, 33. It's up on the screen as well. This is a New Living Translation. Don't let anyone ever say to you, you know, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, he did claim to be God and his enemies tell him that. They know what he claimed. Here they are responding. They wanna kill Jesus. Jesus says, why do you wanna kill me? They replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. They know that he's not claiming to be, you know, an emanation from God. No, they know you're a man and you're saying you're God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, right? See, it's not the, you're the exact spitting image of God's face. No, of God's nature. Jesus's identity in relation to God is quite simply Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I want to grab the second point. Okay, well, who is Jesus in relation to creation? Here's where we get the second phrase of verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this one is a little, maybe a little more difficult. He's the firstborn of all creation. First thing we need to know is what does firstborn mean? It does not mean he's the first child in a family of six. In other words, he's not the first in a line, a quantity, well, how can you say that? It's what it says, he's firstborn. Well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna say, well, what is, what do, how is firstborn used in different parts of the Bible? And then how is it used in this context? Let me offer this, Exodus 4, Jesus calls Israel, the nation. Jesus says, you are my firstborn. Well, Israel was not the first nation on the planet. What, what God is saying when he says to the nation of Israel, he's saying, of all the nations, you are the 
chosen, exalted above all other nations. That's the idea with this Greek word firstborn in this context, okay? Speaking of uh, the Messiah, when, when God is, is, is speaking of the Messiah to come, Psalm 89, 27 says this, and I will make him, the Messiah, the firstborn. Okay, what do you mean you'll make him the firstborn? It says it in the Psalm, the highest of the kings of the earth. So you see firstborn there, you gotta get it out of our heads in, in this context. It's not, he's gonna be the firstborn, he's the first king in a long line. Jesus is a king, but there were a bunch of kings in the Davidic line that came before Jesus. So what does it mean, God, that you're saying you're gonna make him the firstborn? Well, he says it. Jesus is the highest of all the kings. He's exalted above all the kings. This makes sense? So there's one reason I would say this firstborn is not, it's not talking about one in a line of, uh, of uh, children, so to speak. The second is context. We always say context is king. What do we mean when we say context is king? Because you know we teach through the Bible and it's important for us to do this in our own personal study. We mean that context is, is the final arbiter, in a sense, as to what a word means. The immediate, the extended context. Ultimately, you gotta go to the context, say, well, what does it mean in this context? And in this context, and this is, you know, you and I can read it, the context of these, this hymn, we can see that this whole thing is not about Jesus was the first one to come along and there'll be others. No, it's all about the exaltation of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus, that Jesus is above all. That's what the context is. And so it just reinforces that this word firstborn is not about priority in time, okay, or quantity, but it's about priority in rank, and in honor, he's above all. Why am I hammering this? Well, you know, at the end of the day, where Christianity rises or falls is Jesus, the identity of Jesus. And so even today, you know, that's where the attacks will come from the enemy, that, that they're gonna, it's gonna be around Jesus. And, you know, in a very real, uh, live reality for you and I, if you have any Jehovah's Witnesses friends of yours, you know, or you know Jehovah's Witness. I don't know, some of you may come from this background. But uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they take this particular verse, and this is why I'm camping on this. And they say, you see that right there? Jesus is the firstborn. In other words, Jesus is a created being. And then he created, you know, yeah, we would admit he created everything else, but he's created himself. And that's not what this says. It's not what the whole Bible says. And it's not what Orthodox Christianity says. Jesus is not a created being. He's the eternal, eternally existing son of God. All right. So how is it that he's over, above, supreme, preeminent, and sovereign over all creation? Well, here's where we're going to verse 16. He unpacks this firstbornness, this exaltation. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So here's how he's over creation and here's how Paul organizes his thoughts. He uses three Greek prepositions and you can see them there in your, in your notes. He says, 
for by him. And then at the end of 16, he notice he says, through him, all things were made for him. By is the Greek preposition N-E-N. Through is the Greek preposition dia, D-I-A. For is the Greek preposition is, E-I-S. No accident, three different prepositions. And I'm gonna use those as our guide for this is how Paul wrote it to say this is how he's overall creation. This is highly technical, but I think important. The, the by him, n, there's some argument about does that mean by or in, like in him. And in our translation, it says in him. In the best scholarship today, I would offer you this, would say that that word is better translated, in him all things were created. You go, well, what difference does it make here? Well, you know, if you say by him, it's almost like Paul's gonna repeat himself when he says, and through him. So, they almost mean the same thing. It's, better, it's a better translation to say, in him all things were created. Well, what do you mean, in him all things? Well, here's what it means. This is Richard Melick out of the New American Commentary. Speaking of this preposition, the N, he says this, it should be understood as in in his mind or in his sphere of influence and responsibility. Practically, it means that Jesus conceived of creation and its complexities. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll camp on this in a moment, but it's in, in the sphere of who Jesus is, within his sphere of his personhood and responsibility, creation was conceived and executed. It's like, well, Jesus did all that? In case we were, in case we were to, 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 to uh, sell him short of everything he did, you notice Paul then says this, and I'm gonna write it up here on the board how it comes across in the Greek text. He says, in heaven, And then he says, or on earth. And then it's like, I'm gonna go a little further. Visible, I hope this gets on the screen because I'm getting low. Or invisible. Paul is, Paul is really going out of his way, isn't he? To, to be comprehensive. I'll tell you something, and I'll get to this because I'll teach the third verses later, but just in your own study, mark all the times the word all is used in here. It's just terrible grammar almost. You know, it's like way too much of it, but he's trying to say all. And so then he says, heaven, earth, uh, visible, invisible. And in the Greek, and you'll see on the screen, the idea that he's pointing to and, and they understood is, okay, heaven is invisible and earth is that which is visible. So Jesus, in Jesus, all these were created. Well, that, you know, the visible we get, right? I think we do. There is nothing you could look at under a microscope. There's nothing you could ever see through the most powerful telescope that Jesus didn't make. That's, it, there's nothing. You can't touch something, smell something, taste something, 
here's something that Jesus didn't create. It's, it's all inclusive. It's the invisible that can trip us up a little. Because then he goes, you know, it's not just the physical world. He says, it's the invisible. And he says, the heavenly. Here's what I want us to understand. He's not talking about heaven as our eternal abode. You know, our, we're gonna be in heaven with Jesus. He's not talking about that here. What he's talking about is a realm of existence that's just as real as the physical world and all that's in it. This is where... Um, Robin, well, I'm gonna say this. Rob and I have, all, or have been encouraging you guys, I, I think you'll remember this, that you know, when we're teaching, if, I'm, if I know of a resource that I go to to learn and, I, and then I use it to teach you, I just want you to know you can go there and learn. You, know, you don't have to wait for me. And, and one of those resources is this uh, website called The Bible Project. We've, we've shown videos from them. Y'all, they do a phenomenal job of taking some really complex issues and putting them in very simple adult-like videos. And, and I was looking at some because of this, like how do you explain this heavenly realm? And they do it in a phenomenal way. And, and, and I'm gonna just use a part of it here. There's in the Bible, you know, with integrity, when you read it, you can't, you can't miss that the biblical writers describe things that are out there. <laughs> you know, cherubim and seraphim and angels the divine counsel, they're just kind of, sometimes we just go, yeah, there's just something there. Well, what the biblical writers recognize is that there is a reality, you all, that is called heaven. And in this invisible spiritual reality, there are beings, I'm gonna draw like stick people, you know, we don't know their gender or anything, but they're these beings. And then y'all, they're, what is like a seraphim? You know, I don't know, is it like a lion or, I don't know, you know, or there's this big bird with wings. I'm just telling you, there are spiritual beings, Paul says, that are real. Listen to Ephesians. Paul gets a little more detailed on this. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, we gotta stop right there and go, devil? What's, what's that? Who's that? Spiritual being. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, this sounds like the matrix, doesn't it? Because... Where do you think the matrix finds its roots? In the biblical reality that there is a dimension of, of, of reality that we can't see or touch. It's invisible. But Paul's saying it's just as real as, as what you can see in the whole visible world. And yes, it's speaking of demons and demonic forces. I mean, he says it here. Now, here's what I, don't miss this. It's not saying Jesus created demons and dark forces. No, no, no. The Bible tells us, if we read our Old Testament, that when God, that God, that Jesus created angelic beings, the spiritual beings, okay? And that some of them rebelled against God. And they were then cast from the 
heavens or heavenlies to earth. I love the way the Bible Project describes this because there's this overlap between heaven and earth. And so that now on earth, there are these spiritual forces of darkness in, you know, in, in heavenly places, but they're, they're now been cast to earth. All the angelic beings didn't fall, but many did. Does this make sense? Now, we're not afraid of these spiritual demonic beings. How many have read this present darkness back in this? That scared me pretty good. But listen, we need not fear them. Why? And, And you can take it from this text right here. Because Jesus is over them. They're... They're, no, they're not more powerful than the being Jesus who made them. Do you see this point? So there's no fear in those things. No, his point here is to say, look, and by the way, the Colossians, there's teachers in Colossae that are gonna tell the Colossians, you need to worship angels. And Paul's like, are you kidding? No, angels are created. Jesus is the uncreated, overall spiritual realities that we cannot see nor touch. Everybody with me? In him, all of this is created. And then go to this second preposition. Through him, into verse 16, all things, no, no, oh yeah, all things. And by the way, don't get hung up on rulers and dominions, um, rulers, authorities, thrones or dominions. Don't get hung up on this in this way like, is one higher than the other? Which one's the, there is some, some kind of hierarchy here in geography. It's really crazy to think about, isn't it? But, but that's not what Paul's trying to teach us here. So let's just recognize Jesus is above all of them, okay? And then he goes to the, all things were created through him. This is a preposition of means, instrumentality, Jesus is the one. By Jesus, all these things were created. And it really helps us understand, for example, John 1. When John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was, and the word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14 says, and the word became flesh. So, so the word is Jesus. Everybody with me? But then John says in John 2, he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and Without him was not anything made that was made. And that's like really weird grammar on the back end. But it's Paul wanting us to see there is nothing made that was not made by Jesus. If it's made, Jesus made it. If Jesus didn't make it, it doesn't exist. He's going that far to cast our eyes upward to Jesus, the exalted one. By the way, I'm gonna ask you a question. Just sit with it for a minute. Who created the world and all that's in it? Who created everything? (laughs) It's kind of sticky. Because I'm even going, well, eh. Because you go, well, Jesus did, Lloyd. You just said it. Yes, he did, but... But what do we make of Genesis 1? In the beginning, what does it say? God created everything. So who created everything? Jesus or God? 
Yeah, yeah, what have we already said? Who's Jesus? He's God, you all. The Trinity's involved in creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But here is what I hope we grasp in this. That throughout the Bible, and you'll notice it here, you cannot escape it. God the Father puts all the emphasis for creation and all that is on God the Son. See that? It's like God the Father says, yes, the Trinity, you know, we know the Trinity created all things, but God the Father says, but it's all about Jesus, everyone. It's all about Jesus. In him, through him, and it ends with verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. This is a preposition of purpose, purpose. And this is where everything ties up in a sense. Everything finds its source. The ultimate reason for everything that is or ever will be is what? Jesus. Why is, there, why is there something rather than nothing, Jesus? Why did God create the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, Jesus? Why did God create man and a woman and put them on the planet and give them dominion over the world, Jesus? Why, Jesus? But what about Jesus? But maybe there's this, Jesus. Because that's it. It's all Jesus, you all. I like how John Piper described it. He said this, all things were created for him. All that came into being exists for Christ. That is, it exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing, nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saint to the most wicked genocidal dictator, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known. And we might say, but I thought it was all about God. It is. And through the glory of Christ, the glory of the Godhead and the Father is most fully known. It's all about Jesus. I'm gonna invite the worship team back out because when we consider this exalted Christ, it is good that we respond in exaltation of him. But before we go there, it's necessary that we also ponder, well, what does this mean to me? And so I've got some questions on the screen and I want you to ponder this for a moment and then we will sing. I want you to answer the question. In, the, in, the, in dependence upon the spirit, I'm gonna tell you this, the first three questions are either yes or no. I mean, it's, it's all there is there. The fourth question presses into us to say, if this is no, 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 then this, or if this is yes, 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 then, then what is God inviting me to trust him in and for in my life right now? Let's ponder those questions, would you? And then we will lift our voices in a moment 
and exalt the one that it's all about.